This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. When you help create some of the most endearing, iconic animated characters in modern movie history, you pretty much get to write your own ticket. But what if that ticket costs over $250 million to be able to bring to life a character written 100 years prior as your first live action film director credit? Bold move. Let's see how that plays out. But don't worry, when it comes to John Carter, it's not that bad. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that takes a look at A, grades, and B movies. And I have to admit, the movie we're talking about today, it's not necessarily a B movie, because it was definitely released like it was a triple A film. We are talking John Carter, the 2012 release by Disney and join us on the show today. Greg has returned. If you were listening to the show, you remember him from the episode of Mac and me. And if you didn't listen to that, then you know him from moral combat movie date night and Friday is game night. Greg, welcome back to the show. How are you, man? I'm doing fantastic. What can I say? I love aliens. Apparently <laughs> you can't go wrong. We have our cute little aliens in this one too, but I have to ask why John Carter. I, I love this series. Um, when I was a kid, my mom was a big fan of Tarzan, you know, and all those Johnny Weissmiller films read by Edgar Rice Burroughs. I read a couple of those books and then I found out that there's actually a sci-fi version essentially called John Carter Goes to Mars. And I fell in love with those books. Um, I haven't read all of them, but there's a good few that I have read a couple of times, such as The Princess, to Mar- Princess of Mars, which this movie is b- primarily borrowed from. But uh, it does its own independent things as well, which I kind of found enjoyable. But yeah, I just, I love a good sci-fi. I'm a good uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs fan. I mean, I've even got some vintage uh, Johnny Weissmuller signed uh, pictures in the closet somewhere, just from like the collection that my mom and I put together. You know, it's funny. I've never actually read any of the, uh, the John Carter books, although I do have one in my bookshelf mm-hmm. waiting to be read because as any book lover, they'll probably all associate with this you have a bookshelf of books that are to be read mm-hmm. which will probably still be to be read because you keep on going out and buy more books oh and i also forgot i do have i'm probably the only person ever who actually has john carter trading cards they made trading I, cards I, I wish i had them they were like from way way ago like in the mid 90s or something but i have like this clear plastic stack it's like some john carter and some tarzan but actually has like images from the books of uh, some of the crazy creatures that you, you know, will read about in the stories. And so some of the scenes are actually in here, like the scene of Deja fighting herself. This is okay. Now I'm really cool. I need to find my, find these because I remember having yeah, Empire. I, I forgot to bring them with me today, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll send you some photos and you can share those on Twitter or uh, your social medias about it. Nice. Well, with every show, that happens before we get into the movie we need to learn a little bit more about it so greg the ball is over to you it is time to take john carter and trailerize it transported to bar soon a civil war vet discovers a barren planet seemingly inhabited by 12 foot tall barbarians finding himself prisoner of these creatures he escapes only to enter Wula and a princess in desperate need of a savior Nice. That breaks it down fairly well. You know, it's it's a it's a big okay, epic. Number film. one, I'll just get out there. So one of the and I know we're here to talk about the good things, 
But I will just say the one number one complaint I have heard about this movie that I can agree with, so many proper nouns that are foreign to us. Like just in that trailerized thing, there's Barsoom, there's uh, Wula, you know. <laughs> it's it's one of those things where it did really come with its own language. You know, mm-hmm. it's its own, you know, and that's a, a good sci-fi writing thing is that, yes, you create a language and then everything kind of feels like it's in that world. But when this movie came out, it's like, you know, this is the first big budget production of John Carter. The character was created 100 years prior. It's like, we're not quite there with all that. But we'll get to that in a little bit. So let's talk about the stars first. So the movie stars, and if you're feeling some X-Men Origins vibes, there's a Mm -hmm. reason for that. Because it has Taylor Kitsch and Lynn Collins, who were both also in X-Men Origins. Taylor Kitsch, of course, as Gambit, and Lynn Collins as Kayla Silverfox. And also that same year, Taylor Kitsch was also in Battleship, which I'm sure we'll we'll get its own episode of It's Not That Bad Somewhere Down the Road. But I mean, if you take a look at the supporting cast, Samantha Morton, Willem Dafoe, Mark Strong, Kieran Hines, Brian Cranston, like it is a stellar cast of this. Very much. I mean, I even have some of my favorites then, like Thomas Hayden Church. Mm-hmm. He he does a voice in here, you know. Um, it, it it really is a cast, and I've forgotten that Brian Cranston's in this. But he yeah, he shows up as that um Civil War Calvaryman uh, yeah. Powell, almost and, unrecognizable. Yeah, yeah. I was like, wait, is that? It's I I hate doing this because I like to try to be in the moment when I'm watching the film and just accept the characters for who they are in the film. But that was a moment like. Who is this? I know this is somebody. Oh, it's Brian Cranston. How did I not get that? You know. Now I mentioned too that you know in the the, the tease that this was the first time live action uh, director debut kind of thing of Andrew Stanton. Now Andrew Stanton has a hell of a resume. Finding Nemo, Toy mm-hmm. Story, Finding like he helped create those characters. Like he is one of the powerhouses behind Pixar. And this was this was his baby. This was the one he yeah. wanted to bring to the big screen. But it almost wasn't him. Apparently, Robert Zemeckis turned down the offer heard about to that. direct it. According to IMDb, his his comment was, why would I do that? George Lucas has already plucked everything from the, from the series. But this was mm-hmm. Andrew Stanton's first live action you know directorial debut and you know there's a lot to this film especially when you consider the budget of it it's a 250 million dollar budget at least right but it only grows 72 million domestically and 284 million worldwide so regardless of what you think of the movie by definition it's a flop it's an absolute definitely and i mean I think the reason why they wanted to do this is because if you think about the time period where this came out, Disney had just, if I remember correctly, was just about wrapping up the Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy if it hasn't already been wrapped up. And so people are kind of, okay, I'm I'm swashbuckled out. Like, what's the new thing? You know, like I always keep saying, I'm surprised that people aren't superheroed out at this point because we've had what, like two decades of Marvel films. And not that they're bad, but it's just the same flavor over and over again. You lose your marginal utility. And 2012, of course, is the year that Avengers came out. Right. Yeah. That's the year that Avengers came out. Um, the first one, anyways. And so I just. And also Andrew Stanton, to your point, he knows how to do sci-fi as well. He's one of the head writers for Wally, mm-hmm. one of the Disney's bigger animated films, which is a fantastic piece of sci-fi dystopia, if you ask me. Um, so yeah, so like really all the pieces were kind of in line, you know, people are probably looking for a new kind of flavor outside of superheroes and pirates. You know, here's a guy who wants to do a, a triple A uh, uh, sci-fi action adventure film. The script's pretty much already written because that book has been out there for a hundred years, you know? So like really everything should have lined into place for this and it didn't. And it's so sad because it's such a good series. I wanted a sequel. I I do find it um, almost ironic that someone who's known for animation, you know, and really justifiably so, you know, when this movie came out, it came out, it debuted at number two behind an animated film, The Lorax. Mm -hmm. 
you know, Lorax was in second week. John Carr debuted number two. And then the following week, it fell back to number three because 21 Jump Street came out. Mm-hmm. So I get, the, I get the point that, you know, properties like this are going to be niche. I think of Valerian. Right. Valerian is, it's big, it's grandiose, it's fun, it's niche. And it's, it's going based to, on a French comic. Yeah, yeah. It's going to have a cap as far as the people that are going to be interested in it, aside from the visuals. Now, I should point out, we are talking about the 2012 Disney-released John Carter. We are not talking <laughs> about the 2009 release from the Asylum called Princess of Mars, starring Antonio Sabato Jr. as John Carter and Tracy Lords as Deja Thoris. By the way, Edgar Rice Burroughs not even credited on that movie. Wow. They, they, they're like, yeah, I guess we made it ourselves. Now, for reference, that 2009 film, zero. Like, there's no tomato meter reading on it whatsoever. No, no critic would look at it and only a 10% <laughs> audience score. But our John Carter actually sits at a 52% tomato meter with a 60% audience score. So while the numbers as far as the Rotten Tomato score goes says it's not that bad, the box office failure tends to belie otherwise. So is it one of those things where it's just a victim of the box office or is it that bad? I think this didn't get the right publicity. I think that... Um, and I'm going based upon, you know, hearsay knowledge, of course, for whatever internet source that you want to cite. But I remember hearing somewhere that um, there was some kind of kerfuffle with the actual uh, advertising for this film, that really the only advertising that was out there was just a few billboards and maybe a trailer for like, like not even half the movies that were playing at the time. So people weren't really knowing what it's. And if you look at the poster for John Carter, not Prince of Mars, Princess of Mars, but the Disney John Carter, I mean. Um, it's it's a little strange. It, it's some guy riding what looks like a weird rhinoceros with an eclipse happening behind him. I don't know what this movie is. The movie title is just John Carter, but that's not exciting enough. You know, like if they had called it John Carter Goes to Mars, I think that might have helped. But, you know, for a film that has a lot to offer, they didn't really put it on the silver platter that it should have been served up on. I feel like it was almost as if the marketing department was just, ah, it's done. Okay, sure. And they just kind of like slide it on a paper plate across the counter at you. And, you know. I, th- I think it did have that little, that that Valerian issue where, you know, people would go on and on about the source material, but people aren't necessarily as familiar with the source material, right. especially with Valerian. Uh, you know, there are people out there who know John Carter of Mars. They, 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 they know the source material is there, so they were excited. But again, we're talking an older property, and Disney's pushing out Avengers. So yeah. when it comes to when it comes to the promotional material, it's gonna be one of those things where where do you want to put your money on? You know, what you've been building up for five films up to at this point, or this big budget 100 year old character that's making their first major triple A release, you know, screen debut. Exactly. And to that point, look at something that's even more recent and relevant, the Green Hornet movie with Seth Rogen. I think that film, if you look at it as just, you know, let's just look at this film for what it is. It's enjoyable. It is essentially a Batman film if Batman was a screw up. You know, it's a rich guy who decides I'm going to fight crime. I'm going to make a bunch of gadgets, get a sidekick, have a cool car. Let's go out and do this. And the Green Hornet, I forget if it was the 60s or 70s when that show originally aired, but that's even less removed than John Carter being 100 years ago, only about 60 years from the movie coming out. But because that generate the newer generation doesn't know the Green Hornet, it was really the older generation that knows it, the box office results weren't there to back up any kind of furthering for that story. You know, we got the one movie, and then thanks. Yeah, with, with the Green Hornet too, it's like with Batman, because it was Batman and the Green Hornet, the TV series, Mm-hmm. Both done by the same production company around the same time, and they even crossed right. over on a couple of episodes. Batman had at least had a lot of different iterations to kind of remove itself from the Adam West years. Plus, it was a developed property beforehand. Green Hornet went from that TV show to that movie. 
with right. really nothing in between. So, you know, it, it had to make that jump. But I'm sure people who did remember Green Hornet go, well, why isn't the camera tilted diagonally? And yeah, I remember some of those movements they used to do because I used to see some of the shows. Yeah, you're right. Batman, the reason why it's so relevant is because they keep checking in with that character. There's still comics being written about Batman. We had the animated series in the 90s. You know, you had the um, uh, uh, Christopher Nolan trilogy in the 2000s, you know, so that's why they can still do Batman movies or Batman property-based movies like the Joker, because it's still a relevant cast of characters that people of all different generations going forward connect with. Tarzan, on the other hand, has had problems with that. They do keep trying to make Tarzan films. I remember very specifically in the, I think it was 97, 98, they tried to capitalize on Casper Van Dien's popularity from Starship Troopers, and they put him in a Tarzan film. But the thing is about the cinema is that I, like I've said before, there's certain kind of waves and trends of what people want to spend money on. You know, there is a pirate trend. There is a superhero trend. There is a, um, you know, a suburban paradise trend that people want to see in films. And if you're too late to that party, then no one cares anymore. One thing I've always, that I keep telling all my friends is that, I don't know why Hollywood keeps trying to do swords and sandals. Swords and sandals had its day and it's gone. And no matter how many times you try to do a sword and sandals, it doesn't work. But if you pay attention, Hollywood keeps poking their head out of the water saying, you guys want to see a Bible movie? We got a, we got Russell Crowe as Noah. No. Okay. <laughs> um, the last time swords and sandals worked was gladiator. And yes. that's it. That's the last time that was the, the final battle cry of swords and sandals, anything else after that, I challenge anyone to tell me a, you know, Roman-esque or, you know, earlier themed film that did really well. I, because- I, I will give credit to 300 because okay, 300, yeah. that was, that was visually like, like that, that, that was but a that's visual because masterpiece. They did a, the comic book kind of visuals for it. It was more of a comic book movie mm-hmm. than a swords. It was like at least a hybrid. And, yeah, and, right. and I'll give Andrew Stanton a lot of credit for for going to the well and going to John Carter because it hadn't been touched aside from the asylum. Um, it's not like he's he's trying to pitch Disney. He's like, no, I want to do a Robin Hood. We haven't had a Robin Hood movie right. in so long, which I think we have Robin Hood takes, I think, almost every year or every other year. Mm-hmm. Right. So, or or like King Arthur, you know, like, I don't know if you saw it, but... um. The one movie I will never be a guest for you on the show is that um, King Arthur Legend of the Sword. Mm. Hated that film. Absolutely hated that film. So, but yeah, they keep trying that. So um, hopefully this new Green Knight series that they're doing will work out well. But um, yeah, I mean, going back to John Carter, I don't know about you, but I definitely did get a Swords and Sandals kind of vibe from it. The the different, uh, I always forget the proper noun. So I'm just going to call them the Blue Army and the Red Army. Because I don't think the the audience at home really cares about if it's Helios or Destras or whatever they are. But the Blue Army and the Red Army are essentially Romans. Let's just put that. It's it's space Romans. Yes. I I was not aware that Mars had space gangs with their colors. But here we are. Space Um, Bloods and Space Crips. Yeah. It's interesting, though, that you you had that kind of swords and sandals kind of feel. Because when I was watching it, it, that wasn't what you know the, the initial thought that i had i mean yes the before he gets to mars it had that very um dances with wolves that right. era of western kind of feel but then i was more drawn towards conan and that's that another good series. draw yeah yeah you know, especially because you know at, at 2012 you're getting close to and i can't exactly remember what year it came out in the um the remake of Conan. The Barbarian. It was around that time. Yeah, exactly. Which I didn't think was bad either. And Jason Momoa was perfect. Oh, as beautiful. Conan. That, that, that is chef's kiss, you mm-hmm. know, casting right there. But since we're talking about casting, let's get to the breakdown of John Carter and right. prove that this is not that bad. So first of all, acting notes, Greg, I hand it to you. Who were your acting standouts on this one? Willem Dafoe always and forever. I, I think he did a great job. Um, had no problems with him whatsoever as Tars Tarkas, you know, um, I can see him being that leader who is tough, fair, but wise, you know, I think his voice really comes through there. Um, I also really did enjoy, and I always forget how to say this name. So you'll forgive me, but Syrian Hines. 
Uh, Kieran Hines. Kieran Hines. Okay, I always mess it up. Kieran Hines. I think he does a great job for the role that he's given as kind of the the you know he's Deja's father, um, you know the king of the blues as we would just say, but not like B.B. King style, just the king of the blues in this movie. <laughs> um, I think he did fantastic. Taylor Kitsch, I don't have much background for how, for Taylor Kitsch's filmography. All I really know is this in Gambit. Mm-hmm. So I haven't seen him in his range. I think he does a serviceable job as John Carter. If you ask me who would be better at the time, hard pressed right now, I don't really have a good answer for you, but I feel like he only did it because someone else said no. Well, if if we're considering this gambit battleship and snakes on a plane. Oh, I never saw snakes on a plane. Okay. I didn't realize he's in there. Save yourself. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I will say, and and I do agree um, that that Taylor Kitsch, as he's playing it for someone who's, you know, and let's be 1800s, you know, Earthman. Right. He takes a whole lot in stride as it's thrown at him on Mars, which is which is fascinating. That's the, yeah, that's the thing. He does the tough and gruff well, but there's scenes in here where they intercut him remembering with sorrow the the life that he had with his wife and child and the the loss of them, and none of that sorrow comes across. None of the craziness and the mind blowing of like. I'm on another planet. What are these green people? You know, he's just like, oh, I guess I'm dealing with this. And he just keeps going. And I can jump. And I can jump. Yeah. Okay. The jumping scene. The jumping scene's fantastic. I love that because it does make sense that if Mars has a different gravity than ours, that you would be able to do that extraordinary jumping and that, you know, you might be, quote, stronger than, than on uh, Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, in comparison to what you can pick up. But I, I do have to question him being able to survive falls from thousands of feet. <laughs> but besides that, him learning to jump, that's the best training wheel scene I've seen since Iron Man like got a concussion in his lap working with the rocket boots. That was a fun scene. I, I will give full credit to Taylor Kitsch for that one. That was an absolute fun scene of him almost having to relearn to walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because like every step that he takes is way too powerful. It's almost like um, like Superman. Mm. Uh, you know, I think which movie it was because I know there's a couple, but one of the more recent Superman ones where um, maybe it was Man of Steel where they show him as a child and he's like having x-ray vision in the closet and he's freaking out because he doesn't know how to turn it off. Yeah. You know, it was kind of like that where he's taking a step and he goes, whoa, and I took a way too big of a jump there. So he's got to learn to kind of like, almost tiptoe as he's just trying to normally walk. Yeah. And of course he perfected it in decent time because, you know, well, time limits. Oh, record time. Five oh, minutes. Absolutely. Like better than a baby deer. <laughs> um, Lynn Collins, the, the girl who played Deja. Right. I thought she was actually perfect. I and could not find another person possible as, to play her better. And as much as I had Conan the Barbarian vibes from the, the whole scenery, she was giving me straight Rachel Wise vibes from The Mummy. Yes. Like, absolutely. Was, yes. Like, Rachel Wise in The Mummy was perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely perfect. She was fun. She was adventurous. She was strong. She was, she was everything you wanted in that kind of role in that kind of movie. And Lynn Collins in this, you know, and we're going to talk about the plot a little bit later about how everything's about the princess and marrying her off kind of thing. You know, she didn't play that trope. She was she was strong. She was smart. She was more than her position in in the hierarchy of things. Mm-hmm. You know, she was badass in this. Like full credit to Lynn Collins for really stepping up and taking what could have been, you know, just the oh dear me kind of role and and being almost a better hero than than John Carter was. Yeah, I think that scene where he tries, he, when they first meet and he saves her and then he grabs the source and says, get behind me, I'll let you know this gets dangerous. And then she saves him 10 seconds later and says the exact words back to him. Get behind me, I'll let you know this gets dangerous. I was like, yes, absolutely. Applaud, applaud, applaud. That was fantastic. Yep. I also love that she is the one who 
has the background knowledge and the science to figure out like, oh, this is a kind of energy. She's the Egon for this film to explain. It's not magic, it's science. It's just, we don't understand it yet, but like, give me time and I can figure this out. Yeah, it's very much like she is the answer to everything and she plays it very well. It, it, it doesn't feel out of character for her to have that scientific knowledge, to have that understanding, to have that drive and that determination to do whatever it takes to, you know, get, you know, to get him back to Mars or to save helium. Exactly. It reminded me almost of um, the newest version of Aladdin with Princess Jasmine and how they upgraded her character where she is not just sitting there waiting to not be married off to some guy. She's like, I actually want to rule. I've been studying and training to be an effective ruler. Just give me my shot. I get the sense that Dejan here is, and Jasmine are kind of soul sisters in that matter. And I almost wonder if Disney might've borrowed a little bit from the writing of this character when they were trying to think about how do we upgrade Aladdin for more uh, modern storytelling. Now, when it comes to the villain, I think Dominic West was kind of underused. Yeah, he he doesn't seem as str- he feels more like uh, he's a pawn. How do I want to say this? He feels almost like a Bond henchman than the Bond villain. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just a puppet of Mark Strong. If if you want to flash back to that, you know, that first Tim Burton Joker, you know, the, right. the Batman, right? He's he's. Uh, you know, I, I just had this picture of like, you know, Jack Nicholson as the Joker going up to his like number one henchman. It's like, you are my number one a guy. Like, yeah, he's, he's that guy. He's yeah, that guy. Exactly. exactly. But, but Mark Strong, Ooh. like, A, loved him in Shazam. I absolutely <laughs> loved right. him in Shazam. But, you know, for a movie where even Zemeckis said, well, well, George Lucas kind of plundered all the good ideas out of this, if Dominic West is like you know young you know just turned into darth vader or anakin skywalker mark strong is palpatine mm-hmm. he is absolutely palpatine in this and he does it so well he is so like subtle through the whole thing like he is smarter than everyone else he has the big game plan he is his understanding of everything is grandiose and you get that because he doesn't have to you know he doesn't have to overact in this Right. Well, it's because he knows that Mark Strong's a fantastic actor. He knows when he has to play a gangster. He knows when he has to play, you know, a, a good guy who is just doing what he's told, a la Cruella, if you guys haven't seen that yet. And he knows how to play an immortal character. And what I mean by immortal is that he has an indefinite lifespan, but he can still technically be killed if you catch him off guard. Spoilers for the end of this film. But the thing about his portrayal here is that he is playing a character who's like, I've done this a thousand times. I know it takes a calm and steady hand to guide entire civilizations towards the end goals I want them to reach. So I know how to handle, like this Dominic West character, Saab Thon that he's dealing with. I've dealt with a thousand of you guys before in a thousand different worlds. You're no different. I can read you like a book. Here's what you have to do to get to quote your goals, AKA chief mind. And he does that so well. He never once breaks a sweat except for the one moment where he's about to be struck down by Taurus Tarkas and John Carter at the same time. And then he teleports out. Other than that, he is a cool as a cucumber the entire way through. And that's the power of Mark Strong. He realizes this character, he has seen it all and nothing really surprises him too much anymore. If we're sticking with the Star Star Wars references here, he plays this character very much like Return of the Jedi Emperor. Yes, exactly. You know, as opposed to, you know... Like, re- not surprised re- that Luke Skywalker shows up in his throne room at all. Exactly. As opposed to Revenge of the Sith Emperor, which is just way over camp, right? Mark Strong is... You just watch him and you know... It's 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 almost like that Marlon Brando Godfather feel. Yeah, just really sits, sits there, knows everything, and has a plan for everything. Mm-hmm. I also, just to talk about the character itself, I love how this character can camouflage himself as anybody, but also like, and how the camera plays with it, where it'll show a soldier standing there, the camera will pass by Dominic West, and then suddenly Mark Strong is standing there, just so to let the audience know. Mm -hmm. He looks like this, 
but this is who is talking. So you're not like, why is this random soldier talking Dominic West? No, it's it's Mark Strong. It's just, he, here's his camouflage and how he looks. I think the directing there for showing visually with, you know, no one said, oh, you're in disguise now. It never says that. It's just, it's one, one of the best examples of show don't tell in terms of getting that exposition across. Anyone else on your acting list? That, oh, um, I never know his name. I know him as the child actor. Well, his name is Daryl Sabara, uh, but I know him as um, uh, Junie Cortez from Spy Kids. Okay. The guy who played Edgar Rice uh, Burroughs. Uh, I just, I note him because I, I love the Spy Kids movies. I know that they're dumb and fun, but I like them. Um, his role in here as Edgar Rice Burroughs, AKA Ned, uh, you know, John Carter's cousin, I, I, I think it's fun. They tried to supplant the author of the story in there. So as if it's a true story and here's how I got this story. Um, but I wish they would have given him more so he can do more other than just look shocked and confused. <laughs> and, and that kind of leads us into like the whole script and plot thing. I, I actually loved the fact that, you know, quote unquote, Edgar Rice Burroughs is a character in the movie. Um, I'm a big Clive Cussler fan. If you don't know Clive Cussler, long-time author of the, the the Dirk Pitt Adventure series, primarily the Dirk Pitt Adventure series, and then that's kind of spawned off to a bunch of different things. Um, but if you're thinking movies, uh, two of his books have been turned into movies. Uh, Raise the Titanic, which was, I think, in 1980, and the Matthew McConaughey, Steve Zahn film, Sahara. Oh, wow. Was actually based forever. Was actually based on a Clive Cussler novel now the thing with clive cussler is that in a lot of his dirk pitt books they run into this character the character does something that that kind of helps them out of a jam and then they go off and like finish off whatever it is they have to do for the book and it turns out like oh hi you know my, my name's clive cussler so clive cussler kind of puts himself in the book <laughs> uh, same thing with the with the goosebumps movie you know you have Charles jack Don Platt, to show up a lot exactly yeah. and you have jack Platt play you know playing as Stein, right? And then mm-hmm. Arl Stein shows up as Mr. Black, which is kind of fun. You know, it's a nice little tip of the hat to the original source material and the author, which I thought was almost a, a love letter to the actual series itself. I, I, I really enjoyed that part of it. No, I did too. And it's fun to get the little breakup. Uh, almost like the book ending of the film of like rainy 1880s um Gosh, I don't even know what time there was supposed to be at the end. I forget. But, you know, you have Ned going, oh, your uncle died. Please come to the will reading. And then him helping John Carter fulfill his ultimate plan to get back to Mars. Mm -hmm. You know, so those are fun. But just I I kind of I don't I'm not saying I wish they would have checked back in with him near the end, like somewhere in the middle, because that wouldn't have made sense. It would have completely disrupted the flow. But I, I wish they could have given him a bit more than just being a pawn in John Carter's overall scheme, you know? Um, but still, I, I, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a fun nod to the original author and it lets people who were possibly curious find a way to break into the fact that, oh, these are books and that was the author's name. That's why they had it in there. You know, it gives like a reason to do research and find out. I just want to kind of go through like one of like the main plots of the film though, in that, you know, the prince is going to marry this princess mm-hmm. and then kill her and then take control of the city. No, we are not talking about the princess bride. We are still talking about John yeah. Carter. That is very much plucked straight from that. You know, there's, there's a line of dialogue in the film and I'm going to read it verbatim here. Go ahead. Princess who didn't want to get married. So she ran away. Is that all the rest of the story? It's almost as if that may as well be the tagline for the entire movie. It's almost like, it's almost like you, you're sitting there. It's clearly the writer rage coming through like, I'll, I'll show them. I'll put this in the line. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I forgot to take that note out of my notes. I, I meant to replace that with actual thing. Yeah, right. Now, but we also talked about the jumping. Jumping's the best part of this movie, if you ask me, other than the creatures, yeah. I thought Jumper was a movie starring Hayden Christensen and Samuel <laughs> Jackson and Rachel Which is Bilson. also a good film, actually. I, I enjoyed that film a lot. That, that may be the only time I could sit there and say I enjoyed a Hayden Christensen film. You've never seen Little Italy? I have not. 
it is enjoyable. It's Little Italy is not that bad. Let's just put it that I, way. I, I will give it a chance, but I, I enjoyed Jumper a lot. But yeah, there was so much about the jumping. It's like, okay, we get it. We get he can jump high. We don't need to make him jump almost every other scene. Mm-hmm. Also, it does seem to me that his jumping ability improves over time. Mm-hmm. But the scientist in me has to say, no, over time, his muscles would be weakening because he doesn't have as much gravity to fight. So if anything, his jumping should de- like should decrease over time. <laughs> I, I, again, I, I think Mark Strong brings a lot out of the plot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the actors that are there, they, everyone put their all into this. It's a big big movie you know the plot does get a little complicated at times because there is quite a bit going on uh because you do have to introduce a lot into this into the two hours you know but it's not like you got lost with it and that's still a good thing Mm -hmm. the one thing i think is bold for them though to do is and i know this is in the book but as we said before this movie has a lot of proper nouns in it that the audience has to be able to pick up with little handholding to explain to you, this means this, that means that. But the other thing that they do that's a bit bold is they introduce to you the entire alien culture and race of the Tharks, which is so alien that they literally are giant insects. Mm-hmm. They're not Because there's two races on this planet, for those who haven't seen it. There's the red mans who look like humans, but they bleed blue because... Uh, and then you have the Tharks, which would be 10 foot tall, four armed, two legged, giant green bug creatures who are intelligent enough to have their own society and everything. But they have such interesting customs that are not directly addressed or explained in here. And it would leave many audiences, I think, scratching their head. Like, for example, they leave their eggs in a hatchery and walk away, like how some species would do. They come back, some of the babies are born. They say, hey, 16-H and hatch. Okay, we'll crush them. You know, like in the books, it's explained because there's a massive like resource, uh, resource shortage. And they kind of address it a little bit saying, oh, Mars used to have oceans, now there's none. But they explain more in the books about the logic and reason behind, you know, killing off offspring that's not strong. That It's not just because oh we're spartans and we're tough it's actually a resource management strategy which is kind of smart but i that's one thing that i wish they john carter should be like no wait don't kill the babies the babies the babies did nothing to you but you know of course there's no one questioning anything on this planet especially john carter he just goes mm, cool i can jump and moves on with his life i i'm i'm of two minds of this here because yes you're introducing an entire vocabulary, culture. Mm-hmm. You're, you're introducing a lot in this first movie. And they don't really dive into the backstory of the culture through long scenes of exposition. Right. So I, uh, on the one hand, I'm like, okay, you just dropped me into the deep end and I need to swim. But on the other hand, it's almost refreshing that they're not didactic about telling us everything it's like it's like spider-man homecoming we didn't need to see uncle ben die again you know which was all which was almost refreshing in a spider-man film so again it's one of those things where it's like you can go either way maybe a little bit more explanation on a couple things but i think they did the wise choice of not being like you know we're going to tell you the story of the john carter and it would have to be a four-hour movie to be able to explain everything with with exposition and the like yeah but, you know, like you said, you don't have to explain everything. Some things are easy enough. Like, I do like the um, the uh, baby ritual that he goes through where they're clearly cleaning the infants with some powder. They make them drink something. And then the alien just says, you know, take in the voice of Barsoom. And now he can understand her because he drank this thing. That's a fun way to get over the language barrier quickly. They established... They do speak a different language. He doesn't understand it. They give him a magic potion, and now he can do it. Do we need to explain what's in there? No. Just go for the fact that now he speaks Martian. Probably tastes better than a Babelfish in oh. the ear. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. But but also, it would have been easier to just stand near the TARDIS, apparently. Or or um, get a um, 
a server droid to inject a microchip into your ankle from Farscape. Yeah. Know? Oh God. There's so the DDRs. So many tropes of of here's how you understand our language. Right. Right. No, it it was fun. And I think by just calling it the voice of Barsoom, it was like that. That's a that's a great script moment where it's like four words tell you everything that's going on in this scene, and that's all you need. And that that was actually brilliant script writing at that at that point. Right. Because it's not him having to learn slowly over time, as you reference like Dances with Wolves, where he's like slowly picking up the vocabulary over weeks and months. It's we're going to get you caught up right now. We're going to give you 50 minutes of Tatanka. Tatanka. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, why, why, why can't we just go like, you know, um, Star Trek Next Generation, Shaka when the walls fell. Yes. <laughs> Timba, his arms wide. Yes. Uh, um, the one thing I really, really do enjoy in this film, though, is the absolute bros friendship that John Carter and Tars Tarkas form mm-hmm. after he comes back. You know, they have the whole gladiator scene together where they're fighting the giant white apes. And then that just like seals the deal for them. You know, before John Carter was kind of Tars Tarkas like special pet and then a special weapon. And then he's like, no, you're going to leave, save my daughter's life, yada, yada. You came back. We're best friends. You know, just... I, I could get an entire movie of just him and Tars Tarkas hanging out, and it would be probably the best ninety minutes I would spend that day. I if jo- if John Carter Two Electric Boogaloo is going to be <laughs> a buddy cop action film with yes. John Carter and Tars Tarkas riding Mars dogs all over the place at breakneck speed, I yes. am I am all for that. And the dog is the siren is just howling. Oh, as it runs. Exactly. Which randomly also attacks and kills people rather violently. Yep. yep. Um, uh, I did like that they also tried, they had that as the nanny of the babies. It just mm-hmm. makes sure that none of the babies get out. And that's why it attaches to John because it thinks he's a baby trying to escape the nursery. It, it, I'm going to bring up the best thing of a bad reference in this one. Tell me you weren't getting lockjaw from the Inhumans yep, vibes. Exactly. It, you know? It's 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 space lockjaw. It's alien kind of lizard toady looking lockjaw. Pretty much, and that's the thing. Inhumans, so much could be said about Inhumans. Mm-hmm. So much could be said about Inhumans. None of it good. But lockjaw, <laughs> lockjaw was the one they were where like like fandom like fa- fandom and non fans like sat there and went, I okay, I'm on team lockjaw and we're fine. Yeah. With with that Those part of the show, well, exactly. He's such a good dog, mm-hmm. and so so are our Mars dogs. Yeah. Um, what's funny is that I think they only name check the dog once in the film. I don't even remember what it is off the top of my head, but it's like really he had a name. Like I thought he was just Space Dog. But it, uh, it also some of the cinematography around the point of view of Space Dog, like of uh, I can't I can't remember the name of it right now. You're right. It's like it had a name but the cinematography from the pov of that i thought was fascinating oh yeah like when john carter's jumping up the stairs to leave the dog looks up and the camera tilts up with the dog's point of view i i love that you know it's i remember when i was taking some uh, photography classes uh when i was in middle school my teacher always told me one of the most interesting perspectives you can do is to take the view from uh, down low, like a child's perspective, you know, how does looking up and seeing the world, how does that change your perspective? And yeah, getting the view from from the pupper's point of view is amazing. And I love the fact that um, he was just so loyal to John instantly, he would chase him around just to be like, oh, I, I don't want to lose you. So much so that he's even willing to follow John onto the um, mortal engines city that is walking a lot on this planet. I, I do want to point out because we're talking about Andrew Stanton's direction here. Um, there was the arena fight scene, like right. you know, near near the end, and it had a real Attack of the Clones big fight with the. It, I was about to say I think that might even it seemed to me like the same arena from Attack of the Clones. And it, it, it's funny because I, I I would love to I, I I wonder what the Star Wars prequels would look like. If Andrew Stanton had a chance to actually direct Attack of the Clones, I bet you anything, that scene might play out very similar to what happened in John Carter. Mm-hmm. Which would be interesting, too, because when you think about it, 
Think of that original Star Wars trilogy. The best one of the bunch is The Empire Strikes Back. Personal opinion. Right. But it's I not agree. it's not directed by George Lucas. It's no, it's Erwin Kirshner, right? Mm-hmm. So the best thing that Lucas did for Star Wars was put, you know, Kirshner in the director's seat to kind of almost help Lucas step away from it. You know, fresh eyes. I I would love to see Andrew Stanton do something Star Wars. I, I think think it, I think it would be good. I mean, if you think about it, the giant, the great white apes are very reminiscent of Rancors in terms mm-hmm. of the size and the physicality. The main difference, of course, is that they have four arms that are a little bit bigger and they're blind. Besides that, it's essentially a Rancor. Mm-hmm. And here he gave us a double Rancor fight and John Carter is able to kill them quickly, you know, which is a fun scene. But you're right. I think that given the fact that Star Wars does have so many fantastic creatures, and clearly Stanton loves a good creature fight because he has like, what, four of them in this film? I, I think that there's a lot of potential there to have a, many memorable scenes. So yeah, I think he would be a fantastic pick if they decide to do Star Wars 12 or whatever number we're on now. I forget, I lost track <laughs> after Rogue One. Something something ending in Electric Boogaloo. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, at this point, I think it would be uh, John Carter 2, Electric Barsoom. Ooh, yes. Yes. I, I'm, yeah. <laughs> um, it's epic in scope when you watch this film. Like, the scenery, the sets, like, and it's, it's. I almost liked it more because it wasn't your typical red, dusty desert look of Mars. It had its look. Mm-hmm. It had its style. It wasn't just your typical barren wasteland. There was actually water on mars they drank it at the wedding ceremony like it's not just this this barren wasteland that that is the trope of mars i i think they designed it beautifully the airships oh my god the design of the airships when the, when they were fighting oh, was, i love was, that they're using solar panels to run those things that's yeah. fantastic and they almost remind me of like kind of an insecty bird design and how like the airship or the um solar panels come out almost like feathers Mm-hmm. wings on the ships those were fantastic and the cgi holds up today oh definitely like yeah. it's a it's a 10 year old film that cgi holds up extraordinarily well which they, was surprising um going back to your conversation a second ago about the just planet itself um i don't know about you but some of the sound cues when they're just traveling around mars very uh, lawrence of arabia almost Yes, imbibing, uh, you know, of just like though I'm I'm so bad with music and describing. It. I know that you're so much better than I, but you you could probably describe it better than I can. Of just like that kind of um, I mean, you describe it, but yeah, it had a very Lawrence of Arabia kind of like, like wandering the desert vibe, but like not like a direct rip off of it. It was almost like an homage to it. I I was you know I I flash back to the mummy again because well they're in a desert but and the, the mummy yeah the soundtrack to the mummy was you know perfect uh, and and I looked up I'm, I'm probably gonna butcher his last name uh, but the score was done by Michael Yakino I think I'm, I hope I pronounced his name right Michael Yakino um, but if you take a look at the movies he's worked on it's no surprise. That the, that the soundtrack on this is phenomenal. Um, the two J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies, Rogue One, Doctor Strange, the Spider-Man Marvel movies, like these are all films with phenomenal scores to them. So it's it's not surprising that Mike, uh, that Mike was able to create such an epic sound scope for everything that's there. The one point that really kind of stood out to me musically was that scene where, you know, John Carter just snaps and starts slaughtering everything yes. around him. And the it's it's almost a counterpoint music because of course he's I know there's that too. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's very much like flashing back to what he couldn't do for his family. And you know, he's just basically fighting his way through, which is what he was he's been doing emotionally on earth and now he's doing physically on mars and the music i think is a great counterpoint almost like a ballet style counterpoint behind it mm-hmm. you know I, th- that was my exact note this feels almost like a ballet 
yeah. here, you know? And yeah, it, it's amazing because there'll be a scene where he's raising up his arm to swing down a sword to chop at somebody and then immediately cuts. And it's like kind of a red end of the color spectrum filter on it. And then it cuts to a blue filter, spectre, uh, uh, spectre filter where he is pounding a hammer into the tombstone of his wife back on as, as a memory, you know? strike and pound you know and it's it, and then the yeah the music is very as you said counterbalanced to the high-paced frenzied action that we're currently experiencing because he is being driven by the melancholy emotions of his previous failures of not being able to defend those that he loves and cares about although i, I do have to point out during that scene there was one moment in that big slaughterama um when Lockjaw of Mars decides to <laughs> fly through and like almost eviscerate the head of one of one of the aliens, I'm just like, you you showed that once, and it felt overlooked because it was in such an um, uh, uh, an emotional scene for John Carter. I almost mm-hmm. wanted that to happen outside of that scene, right? Because that's a very useful ability, first of all, <laughs> right? Lockjaw, fetch head. Okay, yeah. Where was that before when we needed you the most? Just kind of one of those uh, Deus Ex uh, Martian dog, you know. But but and it was one of those scenes where it's like that happened and like it, like I had to like double take because it's like that just happened in this really emotional scene. That's a very comedic moment. Mm -hmm. And this is a very pivotal emotional character turn moment. You know, it's almost like yeah. Go go eat someone else's head somewhere down the road, you know. Maybe do that at the fight at Helium, as opposed to this point where right. John Carter is at his, you know, almost manic worst. Yeah, it. I don't know what they were quite thinking there. I mean, that choice was strange. I I feel like if you remove that and you look at just the somber moment that that scene's supposed to be, probably a lot of test audiences were like, wow, this movie's a bummer, man. You know? And so they probably felt like they needed to intercut some kind of, you know, counterpoint to the emotional uh, depth that John Carter, but I agree with you. I think the head thing with the, you know, lightning dog is cool, but it doesn't belong in that particular scene. We're allowed to have deep, sad moments in a film that's an action and technically even a comedy in some points, you know, it's okay to have those sad moments here. That's why the theater symbols are, you know, comedy and tragedy. You're allowed to have those, those sad times just so long as you promise to at least level us out before we walk out of the theater, you know? Yeah. It's like a news reporter reporting on a massacre, smiling all the way through. It's like, no, you need to use the frowny face at this point. Right. Like, um, oh, God, what's her name? Uh, that movie, uh, The Truth About Cats and Dogs. Oh, with, I love that movie. Yeah, where I, I forget her name, but the woman who played Kill Bill, um, she's like, Uma Thurman. Like, Uma Thurman. 37 people drowned today in a bus that went over the river. Gina, or Gina Garoppolo's like, maybe a little bit less happy about the 37 people dying. <laughs> exactly. Janine Garofalo needed to to help them read the room on that scene. Yeah, really. Where were you, Janine? I blame you for that. She was on the radio, and the radio signals do not make it to Mars. True, true. I did, as much as that part didn't work, I loved the, um, the twist at the end. You know, John Carter looks like he's dead. And then he's in the, the the tomb that only opens from the inside. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when, you know, Mark Strong, you know, comes in. Like, I thought that was a great twist. I thought it was, it was fascinating. It was, it, it's one of those little plots where it's like, it's not, it's not an overly worked idea. You know, you think about Captain America Civil War. For everything to fit into place, that would, it took a lot for that to sit. That to fit so many place. things had to go right. So many people had to make the choices that there's no way he could have predicted they would have made those choices right. But in this one, it's I'm going to pretend to be searching for something. Oh, wait, what if I just actually pretend I find it and then he'll come to me? Yeah, I'm just going to play my cards close to the chest and this will happen. And it makes sense. It makes absolute sense that it happens. Right. It, it was it was a well-scripted little little twist at the end for John Carter to be able to get the amulet back so he could go back to Mars. I thought I thought that whole scene was played out really really well. 
The only thing I kind of wish they could have maybe done is him going like, Oc, Oct, what is it? I, I wrote it down somewhere. Yeah, It's been 10 years. I don't remember what the words are anymore. <laughs> what did I write that down? Well, it's not the mummy, so it's not a nux and a moon. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, that's true. Um, <laughs> I got to go watch the mummy again, man. You're making me want to watch that. <laughs> but, but only the first two. I will not watch the third one because that's when um, uh, they changed a few actors and actresses, and I was not okay with that. As much as Brendan Fraser is a great cast in there, it you know without his wife, I'm sorry, it just does. It's not the same film. Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz together, always good. Right. That's that's just Perfect. that's that's just once a, Rachel Weisz is like I'm not going to come on for the third film. They should have been like, okay, well then we don't have a third film. Well, it's because you probably saw the, saw the CGI of The Rock at the end of the second one. Said, yeah, I'm not doing that again. You didn't like the Scorpion King? I like the Scorpion King. The CGI is terrible, but the movie that it inspired is fantastic. The CGI in that makes you look at the Phantom Menace and go, okay, so uh, maybe Jar Jar it wasn't looks that real. Bad. He's right there. <laughs> or, or all the robots fighting at the end. Oh, yes. Yes. That's so good. Uh, okay. Oh, Do we have anything else that hits your, uh, your positive list on this? I think it's interesting that... John Carter, he is a Civil War veteran. He was a cavalryman, and he's fleeing the war. Very much like you said, Dances with Wolves, right? Where he is technically still enlisted, but he's like, no, I'm not going to be part of that anymore. And then he gets transported to an alien world where there's still a Civil War taking place, and there's still a disassociated uh, third party who is very tribal in their nature, and he decides to go side with them. They give him his own special name, you know, um, of course, like we said, this is written 1918. So, you know, it's a bit closer to that time than today. But I think it's a kind of a fun parallel that he also doesn't call out like, wow, it's just like at home, huh? Okay, so Matt, brother fighting brother, and you got a third class who no one really appreciates, but actually is, you know, powerful and strong in their own right, have their own amazing culture, and the rest of you guys just kind of like overlook. Yeah, the, the, the earth parallels are there. We don't have to point our finger and say, look, there's an earth parallel. Yeah, right. Um, I also really did like the adamantness of Tharks don't fly. You know, mm. where they're just like, no, we don't fly, but yet they're, may, they're able to figure out how to fly a giant ship well enough to crash it into the location they need to reach. Okay. This may just be me. And it probably yeah. is just me because I think in weird ways. But that whole Tharks don't fly thing, I was just waiting for someone to go, and machete don't text. <laughs> right. Yeah. That that would be if we if John Carter ever gets elevated to the level of Rocky Horror Picture Show where people do midnight shows and shout stuff at the screen and throw stuff and bring props, that will be the response to Tharks Don't Fly and Machete Don't Text. John Carter and Machete together at last in space. This entire film, though, did kind of remind me of an anecdote I heard from uh, Kevin Smith, because you bring up so many comic book references, where I think he said he had a meeting with like Barry Sonnenfeld, where they were talking about doing that Superman reboot with Nicolas Cage mm-hmm. back in like the early 90s. And apparently Barry Sonnenfeld said like, I want to make a Superman film, but I don't want to see any of that fake stuff. Like, I don't like the cape, but I don't like it when he flies. It looks fake. So like, he'll just leap over buildings with a single bound. And how about he fights like a giant spider or something? And I was like, you know what? Technically, that's what this film is. John Carter is a hero who lost his family, is transported to an alien world against his will, where due to difference in conditions between his home planet and the new planet, he's gifted with extraordinary strength that no one else has. John Carter is essentially a Superman film. You do realize, though, that... And and, and I do remember that whole... I don't know if it was Barry Sonnefeld. It was... It was somebody like that, but yeah, but it was a lot of the ideas that that came up from that producer in that pitch led us to the wild, wild west, wild, wild west. Yeah. Starring Will Smith. Kevin Smith is like, oh, he got his spider. Look at that. Right. But yeah, no, it's, it's, there is a lot you could sit there and point at John Carter and go, you know, no wonder it backfired as far as the box office goes. Mm-hmm. But I think I think the critics and I think the audience score do really stand out. Like as much as you want to poke fun at this movie, it is actually a it's decent, fun movie. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know what? No scene 
or situation overstays its welcome. He is captured and he's able to get out of capture within about two or three minutes. You know, he is fighting in a gladiator arena. He gets out of there in about five minutes. It, nothing feels drawn out. Maybe there, you can argue some scenes could have been cut from the film. That's, you know, difference of opinion between you and your neighbor. But every single scene, if you don't like it, wait two minutes and the next scene will start. That That is the pacing of this film really stands out as it is it's a big action film it's mm-hmm. it's they don't take a lot of time to you know be didactic on backstory that uh, to over explain the culture yeah. it's a ride all the way through yeah there he are gets laughs. to mars in 15 minutes do you have any idea how crazy fast pacing that is for any other film studio to have done they would have been like no we got to give him his whole like his whole wife and stuff, kids up at the beginning. So we know he's sad before he goes to Mars. You know, we have to show him trying to find the gold on, on planet earth. We have to show him dealing, dealing with this relationship with the Calvary and all that. No, they're like, listen, he was a soldier. He found gold. Let's get him to Mars. Yeah. Disney's like, yeah, let's just get to the good part. There are fun beats. There's action. There's a lot of action beats. You know, you've got a decent romance story. And while yes, some of it is, you know, overplayed not as far as like in the in the movie itself but like you know storylines and story plot devices that have been done over and over again i it's a it's a popcorn flick it's an absolute popcorn flick go in expecting a popcorn flick the mummy it's a popcorn flick even jungle cruise that came out recently it's a popcorn flick stop trying to overanalyze it jungle cruise yeah don't try to figure that one out just eat your popcorn and enjoy the rock Exactly. And yeah, I I want to see people running around on, a, on an alien planet doing actiony stuff. And John Carter provides that in spades. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, Greg, we've uh, come spades to- because he's Gambit. <laughs> Ooh, I didn't even think about that. But yes, I will go with that. Okay. So, Greg, I, the, the, the ball's in your court. Who is mm-hmm. the MVP of John Carter? <sighs> I mean, I think we've already said it. You know, well, no, that's no. I was going to say Mark Strong right off the bat, but I don't know. Willem Dafoe really does bring it, and so does Lynn Collins. That that's a tough one. Don't make me choose between my. Okay, let me make this plea to you. Okay. Ars Tarkas has multiple arms. Can I have multiple picks? <laughs> you you can have multiple picks. Okay, then I'm I'm going to hedge my bets then. Uh, and say it's between Lynn Collins and Mark Strong. I think they both bring just what needs to be brought to this film. I think that if you were missing either one, the film would not be as enjoyable. I think that they are the two one. They're the two necessary pillars that hold this up. Willem Dafoe does great, but I think not being able to get his full physicality and performance is a little bit lacking in terms of his ability to reach MVP. But yeah, Lynn Collins, Mark Strong all the way. You know what's funny? I had Lynn Collins as my MVP and I had Mark Strong as an honorable mention along with composer Michael Giacchino. Right. This I didn't think about the composer, but you're right. We did talk a lot about the music and how that is very good in this as well. It, yeah. it is. I don't, it's not an iconic score, Mm-mm. but had, you know, John Carter two or three been made and he continued along with the score. I think there are themes in there that would have become iconic if people yeah. would just, if given the chance. But yes, Lynn Collins, Mark Strong, the two of them literally stand above everything else in this movie and make it so much fun. Yeah. Um. So I'll tell you what, you take Lynn Collins, I'll take Mark Strong, and we'll call it a day. <laughs> Exactly. Ah, Greg, this has been so much fun. Now, for any of you who want to actually go and watch John Carter, it is actually on Disney Plus. Yeah, it's on Disney Plus. So go ahead, stream away if you got Disney Plus. It is definitely worth the watch. Greg, thanks so much for coming on to the show, man. Maybe next time we'll talk Princess of Mars and you know fight our way through Antonio Sabato Jr. and Tracy Lords. I don't know if I have the strength. Uh, you can do it. You can do it, man. You can do it. Uh, no, I'll, I'll stick with my space theme. If I ever come back, we'll talk uh, the adventures, the adventures of Pluto Nash. Oh, you want to go there? Do you? I do. I really do. Oh, uh, I don't know if I'm ready for that one yet. But you know what? I will write it down on the list, and we will we will go down that road. Okay, we'll go down that road in our John Cleese uh, hologram car. 
I think the only time where you sit there and go, I really don't want to see John Cleese because I don't want him associated with this movie. Poor John Cleese. Well, well, that and Die Another Day. The James Bond um, travesty. I don't know. I, I can normally look at John Cleese in a movie and go, ah, oh, it's John Cleese. Everything is better now. Mm, yeah, but he's only in that film for like five minutes. And then he he's the one who introduces the invisible car. Okay, I'm going to go back to watching a fresh called Wanda. <laughs> Fish called Wanda, there you go. Get, yeah. that, get that palate cleanser. <laughs> exactly. Greg, thank you so much for coming in back onto the show. And to uh, our listeners, pleasure. to our listeners, thank you so much for listening to us. Point out only the good things of 2012's John Carter. If you have a movie that you think either A, deserves to be you know redeemed through the, uh, through us finding A grades in it, or you, find, you think there's a movie that there's no way we can find a grades in it whatsoever hit me up on twitter at not that bad cast and we will take a look at it do our best to find only the good things about only the worst movies this is it's not that bad thank you so much for listening we'll catch you next time take care mm-hmm.